Let us take our Bibles and open to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. We have a glorious Savior, a glorious King and Priest. Our purpose for assembling is to learn of Him, to praise Him, to provoke one another, to love and to good works in His service. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 declares to us six great aspects of our religion. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. One of the chief aspects of our religion is the Lord Jesus Christ was received up into glory. And when He was received up into glory, which we call His ascension, He was then crowned with glory and honor and told to sit at God's right hand on a throne that He will occupy for all of eternity. He is the Son of David. He rules over the kingdom of God. And we are members of that kingdom. Thank you, Lord, for saving our souls out of the kingdoms of this world. Men prefer Jesus in a manger, on a crucifix, or at a door. Turn over in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, and let's consider for a moment their error. The book of Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20 is where they get their idea that Jesus stands at a door. And that He stands at a door we will not deny. What kind of a door that is, we will. The door that he stood at in Revelation 3.20 was the door of the church of Laodicea, who thought that they were sufficiently rich that they didn't need an improvement in their fellowship with Jesus Christ. And they were wrong. He said that they were naked and blind and needed him. And so he does stand at the door of his churches and seek entrance for a more personal degree of fellowship with them. But to think that he stands begging at the heart's doors of sinners is without Bible basis. From Revelation 3.20, they get the idea of Jesus standing at a door. From Roman Catholic artists, they get the idea that Jesus is a long-haired, blue or brown-eyed she-man. Hippie. For those of you that were raised for many years or generations with that picture, when you see it, it still has, to some degree, a claim on many of you. And that is why we were warned so expressly to have no graven images. Because a picture is worth a thousand words, In the wrong way, in this case. They go to the book of Revelation to find their long-haired Jesus standing at a door in verse 20 of chapter 3. To get to chapter 3, you should read chapter 1. Here's what I see him described like in chapter 1. Verse 12, Revelation 1, 12. And I present to you a king. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. And knowing the terror of this King, I seek to persuade your souls this morning to give your lives to Him. To think of Him. To speak of Him. And to live for Him. Verse 12, And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, One like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, 
and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me and said unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. 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 And have the keys of hell and of death. John, the writer of this book of the Bible, knew the Lord Jesus Christ. He knew him intimately. He rested in his bosom when they ate supper together. The Bible tells us that about John and his relationship with Jesus. But when this same John saw the glorified Lord Jesus Christ, he fell at his feet as dead. How do they get to chapter 3 and end up with a drab-looking, effeminate, weak, begging, pleading, impotent little man? When chapter 1 tells us what he looks like. Uh, Do you love the description of chapter 1? That is my Savior. That is my King. And that is the head of this church. And He is the cornerstone of this church. He is our priest. He's our conqueror. He's our brother. He's our friend. He's everything. He's all in all. And He's beautiful. And we would fall at His feet as dead ourselves if He were to appear right here for one second. But you know what? He is appearing to me with the eyes of faith. Because I can read these verses and see what he looks like. And this is the word picture that God wants you to have in your head instead of what those Roman Catholic artists have painted for you. And it is a shame that you have ever had to look at them and so that your memory and recollection and reflection is tainted by those stupid pictures. Turn to chapter 19. Let's get another picture of them. If you want to show me a door in a garden with the Lord Jesus Christ on a white horse, with the front feet of that white horse knocking that door down as the Lord Jesus Christ rides through, we're getting closer. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness doth he judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And it goes on to describe him that out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword in verse 15. And he shall rule with the rod of iron, and he is trampling the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. Now, how can you read those two passages which sandwich Revelation 3.20 and end up with a brown-eyed or blue-eyed, long-haired, brown-haired, effeminate, drab-looking little man? Because the devil wants you to think that that little long-haired she-man is the Lord Jesus Christ. The devil knows that that is a disgraceful picture of Jesus Christ. The devil knows that the picture I just read to you is his conqueror. The devil is going to own Jesus of Nazareth as Lord. Brethren, can you imagine this universe at that moment? All the angels of heaven and all the saints of God know about the devil and his activities for 6,000 years, but he will drop to his knee and give glory to Jesus of Nazareth and say that he is Lord. And then that Lord will cast him into the lake of fire that was prepared for him and his angels. Come back to Revelation chapter 2. I am not overemphasizing this important fact. When John wrote to these seven churches, he starts out each little section that we have. We have seven sections to the seven churches. Each section is started out by, by reaching back and grabbing one of those aspects of his appearance in chapter 1. Look at chapter 2 and verse 1 when he addresses the church at Ephesus. 
unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Notice, he went back and got the fact that he walked, he has seven stars in his right hand. See, I'm not going to go over every little detail with you again. It's, it's in a, a wonderful document on the website, but everything that I have described, none of it is carried forward into that picture by the Catholics. Right. You know, that little man standing in the garden couldn't hold a plastic star, let alone seven stars, the kind of which John's describing here. But notice, the Holy Spirit, as he addresses each church, reminds that church, this is the being that you are dealing with. You are dealing with the Son of Man in His glorified state. Verse 8, And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. Verse 18, no, verse 12. And to the, verse 12 is church number 3. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. And where is that sharp sword? Coming out of his mouth. Verse 18, And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. Chapter 3, verse 1, And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Verse 7, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. Chapter 3 and verse 14, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I just went over all those passages to show you the emphasis of the book of Revelation on the picture it wants us to have in our minds by words of what the Lord Jesus Christ in His glorified condition looks like. How can they go in and pull one verse out and end up with that little man, that little effeminate man standing in that picture? And I want to tell you something that is terrible. Even though I sound so intense about this, I had to look at that picture so many times in my life and saw it in Bibles, and saw it behind baptistries, and saw it hanging on walls, it still has this nagging effect on me. And I hate it. Because I know it is not biblical. And yet, superstition and tradition are so powerful that they taint the human soul. So the Lord commanded us to avoid all that stuff. You have never seen anyone like this. There is no Hollywood effects that can ever make anyone look like this. There's no Bible story book that can picture Jesus Christ the way He should look. I thank God for writing me so many words to tell me what He looked like. And letting me know that all churches ought to begin their worship of Jesus Christ by considering who they're dealing with. And then hear His words when He speaks. He is not speaking as that little beggar that you see in that picture. He is speaking as the one who has the key of David. Right. He opens and no man can shut. His eyes are like a flame of fire. There's no flame in that picture that they have of, of Jesus. Isn't that amazing what they've done to corrupt? And you know where that came from. It came from the devil himself. He can make whatever pictures he wants to through foolish men who will follow him but the Lord Jesus Christ is going to ride right over him. Amen. And you know what? We're going to judge angels with the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. Do you know what that army that was in heaven behind the Lord Jesus Christ was all riding? White horses of their own. Is that, is that glorious? Amen. That is heaven. That is the glory of the kingdom of God. He is the captain of the host of the God of heaven. And we are going to be in his army. And those angels are going to be our baggage boys. They are going to be our servants. They desire to look into the things that God has done for us in making us his sons. I do no disrespect to the angels of God. 
They are mighty angels, and one of them could slay this earth. However, they are our servants. And I do not put them down. They were given that role by the God of heaven, and they are thankful for that role, and they willingly fulfill it. But we are the sons of God, and He is our Savior. He is our brother. He is going to present us as His children and His brethren. So much could be said, brethren. Look at 2 Samuel 23. Let's look at a couple of prophecies. Let's follow the course we did last Sunday, but try to make more progress. 2 Samuel chapter 23, David is on his deathbed, and we are told the last words of David. He saw and knew what I just described to you. He knew that he had a son coming that so far excelled him. And David looked pretty good in his day. But he knew that there was a son coming that far exceeded him. And here's what he has to say. Second Samuel 23. I thank the God of heaven as a late teenager for showing me these words and blessing me so much by them. Now these be the last words of David. David the son of Jesse said, And the man who was raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel said, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and His word was in my tongue. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spake to me, He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be as the light of the morning, when the sun riseth, even a morning without clouds, as the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant ordered in all things, and sure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. But the sons of Belial shall be all of them as thorns thrust away, because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man that shall touch them must be fenced with iron and the staff of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in the same place." Those are the enemies of the king that is coming. The king would destroy them and burn them up. We have a sentence and a half, a verse and a half about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the second half of verse 3 and all of verse 4. He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be as the light of the morning, when the sun riseth, even a morning without clouds, as the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. Fresh, invigorating, powerful. Sarah, I am sorry that the last time we stood at the edge of the Atlantic Ocean, there were clouds. Because you did not get to see the sun rise in its glory. Because when there are no clouds, that sun comes up like a ball of fire. And it is beautiful to behold. We had to wait for it to rise above the clouds, and then it was a little hazy, and it wasn't quite the same effect I wanted you to have. Do you see what it says here? And he shall be as the light of the morning, when the sun riseth even a morning without clouds. The Bible says that is a beautiful sight to behold, a sunrise. That's the Lord Jesus Christ by way of prophecy. These are David's choking words on his deathbed before he died. He knew that he had such a Savior and such a King, and that Savior and King was his Son. Although my house be not so with God, yet he's made with my house and with me an everlasting covenant. It's all my salvation. It's all my desire. How could I want or think about anything else than Jesus Christ is my Son? even though he make it not to grow. David had lots of trouble in his family, but he knew that out of that trouble, there was going to be a descendant the likes of which this world had never seen, the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Look at Jeremiah 33. Jeremiah 33. 
how could anyone ever want to read or think about a drama better than this? The Lord's outdone Himself. The preaching of the cross is to us the power and glory of God. The power and the grace and the glory of God. The wisdom of God in designing such a thing. Out of David... Can we on our deathbeds say, Although my house be not so with God, yet He hath made with me an everlasting covenant that David's son shall be my priest and king forever. Can you say that? If you can't say that, then we shouldn't take communion today. Because we're going to hold up the cup of the New Testament which means that David's son is our king and priest forever. And we should die with the same confidence that David did, that in spite of all the sins of our lives and our family, God's made with us, ordered in all things, a covenant forever. Praise His name. Can we die that way? Will you help me die that way? I'll help you die that way. Jeremiah 33. We could read half the chapter. Brother Chris read it to us a month ago or so. I'll read you just a few verses, starting at verse 14. These are prophecies throughout the Bible about a king that's coming. Jeremiah 33, verse 14. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised unto the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, Will I cause the branch of righteousness to grow up unto David? And he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. In those days shall Judah be saved, and Jerusalem shall dwell safely. And this is the name wherewith she shall be called, the Lord our righteousness. For thus saith the Lord, David shall never want a man to sit upon the throne of the house of Israel, Neither shall the priests, the Levites, want a man before me to offer burnt offerings and to kindle meat offerings and to do sacrifice continually. Why will David never need a man? Why will the Levites never need a man to offer sacrifices? Because the Lord Jesus Christ would be there who would be both king and priest. The son of David. Look at Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34. And verse 23, And I will set up one shepherd over them. Ezekiel 34, 23, And I will set up one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, even my servant David. He shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken it. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of David, a prince among them. That prince is in this assembly this morning. He is here by his spirit, walking among his seven golden candlesticks, observing this church to see how haughty we might be, to see how carnal we might be, to see how much we love him who hath a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Let us worship him in our hearts. Let us long for every word of Scripture that he's given us to tell us about himself. Isaiah chapter 9, look at it. You know these words so well. But do you know that these words are just one of many prophecies about the Lord Jesus Christ? Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon His kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forevermore. Even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. You know that prophecy. But do you know the ones in Jeremiah? Do you know the ones in Ezekiel? Do you know the ones in Hosea? Do you know the ones in Micah? Do you know the ones in Malachi? The Bible is full of the prophecies of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for 4,000 years they waited for the seed of the woman 
that would bruise the serpent's head. They waited for Shiloh to come out of Judah. And he has come, and he has been here for 33 years on this earth, and he has been crowned with glory and honor in heaven. Amen. Turn to Psalm 8. Psalm 8, and I'm going to take you over ground we covered last Lord's Day, but I never want you to forget this. When you're reading Psalm 8 to yourselves, and you're meditating upon it, I do not want you to think about zoos. I do not want you to think about the circus where men have tamed beasts. I want you to think about the Lord Jesus Christ because Hebrews chapter 2 shows us the fulfillment of this is in Jesus of Nazareth. Psalm 8, O Lord our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. For those of you that read Matthew 21 last night, you know Jesus appealed to that verse right there to tell those Pharisees that the children of Jerusalem, addressing Him as the Son of David, addressing Him as the King of Israel, were doing so by the inspiration of God who was bringing wisdom out of the mouths of babes to silence their seminary-trained Pharisees. Verse 3, When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers... Isn't that precious? The heavens are the works of God's fingers. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air, and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. What is man? What man? What man was made a little lower than the angels, but was given such glory and honor over all these creatures. The Lord Jesus Christ. Come over to Hebrews chapter 2, and let's remind ourselves of how the Bible interprets the Bible. Hebrews 2, Paul quotes from Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6, and then he says the fulfillment is in Jesus of Nazareth. You say, what about those creatures? Those creatures are groaning in travail and pain until the day the Lord Jesus Christ delivers the whole universe from the curse of sin. You say, do they really praise Him? Go read Revelation chapter 5. Who starts the first chorus? The four and twenty elders and the four beasts. Who, who joins in next? An innumerable company of angels. Who joins in next? All the creatures. All the creatures in heaven, the earth, and the sea. And who says amen? The four beasts. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. Remember, Hebrews 1 and Hebrews 2 are the Apostle Paul proving that Jesus of Nazareth is superior to the angels. The angels did great things for Israel under the Old Covenant. He's showing that Jesus is superior. Chapter 1 had many comparisons. Chapter 2 has this one. Verse 5. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come whereof we speak. Well, if the angels don't get it, then man must get it. And Paul quotes three verses from Psalm 8. Here we go, verse 6 of Hebrews 2. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under Him. 
So far, the reference has just been this prophecy from Psalm 8 about man and what, why is God mindful of man? Why has God visited him? Why has God made him lower than the angels? How has God crowned him with glory and honor? How has God put all things under his feet? Because when he said all things, he, he has to mean that there's nothing not under his feet, but we don't see all things under his feet. So how is the passage fulfilled? Verse 9, but, while we can't see it in any other man, we can see it this way, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. He pulls that out of Psalm 8 and what he's just quoted. We see Jesus, who was made that way for a short period of time, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. This is the coronation of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not the only place it's spoken of in the Bible. Wherever you read about His scepter, wherever you read about His throne, wherever you read about His many crowns, wherever you read about Him being king, all kings become king by being installed as king. And He was installed as king at His coronation when the Lord said, Sit thou on my right hand. That was giving Him His office of king. He was prophetically praised and worshipped as king on earth. But he was not king yet. Until he got to heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ put him on his throne. He was born a king. He was to be a king. But his actual installation was when he was in heaven, crowned with glory and honor, with a glorified body. Look at, what, look at the difference of appearance that he had when John saw him in chapter 1 of Revelation. And so we emphasize the words in the middle of verse 9, crowned with glory and honor. Taken out of Psalm 8. Taken from verse 7. Because we see Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy. God visited Him. God was with Him. He was God with us. And all creatures are subject to Him. Because He's been put over all. Everything reports up to Him. All principalities, powers, throne, might, and dominion, and every name that is named. And as we read down through here, we realize how close we all are are to Him. For it became Him. It was beautifying and glorifying to Him to do these things. For it became Him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory. Those are the ones predestinated to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself. To make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. If Jesus was just an invincible King, He would not be a comforting King and Savior to us. But because of His sufferings, we can go to this King and He can relate to our place in life. Do you understand that? The average king is born in a palace. That king has never experienced the life of his citizens. That king has never been tempted. That king has never suffered. Our king has been tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. Our king has suffered. He has gone through this life and he started out poorer than anyone in here can even think about. His first bed was in a manger. Yours was a whole lot better than that. To make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. What a king we have. There's not a prayer that you can make to him that he can't relate to. There's nothing that you're going to go through that he hasn't gone through. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. For which cause... He is not ashamed to call them brethren. He is not ashamed to call you and me His brethren. Saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in Him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. Here the Apostle Paul is just pulling numerous quotations from the Old Testament to show the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and our close connection to Him. And the remainder of this chapter is to show that we were both made of the same nature. 
Jesus Christ did not take on Him the nature of angels, but He took on Him of the seed of Abraham, so that He was made like us, so that He has experienced human life like us. And He is a perfect Savior. He is a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, according to verse 17, and He's glorious. It says, by the grace of God, He should taste death for every man. You all understand that. You all understand that to be the every man of the context. And the every man of the context are called sons. They are called brethren. They are called the sanctified. They are called the church. And they are called the children God gave me. You say, but what about the words every man? Well, I didn't read this one to you last Lord's Day, so I'm going to read it to you now. If you want a little cross-reference there by every man, just write Colossians 1.28. Because in Colossians 1.28, every man is used three times. Whom we preach, the Apostle Paul wrote, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. We warn every man, we teach every man, and we present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Was that the majority of the human race? Or a minority so small you can hardly recognize it? Did that include Sitting Bull, like I said last Lord's Day? Did it include his friend Crazy Horse? It was the few people the Apostle Paul ran into in his ministry. Of the elect. The every man in Hebrews chapter 2 is limited just the same way. You can read Colossians 1.28 and without any surrounding verses, you know that all it means is the elect that Paul encountered in his life. In Hebrews chapter 2, the every man are the sons, the brethren, the children which God hath given me. And doesn't that match up with everything else we know from the Bible? That I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of Him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which He hath given me, I should lose nothing predestinated to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 5. Hebrews 2 shows us crowned with glory and honor and fulfilling Psalm 8. Revelation chapters 4 and 5 give us a window into heaven. Oh, these are wonderful chapters, brethren. In chapter 4, we are introduced... To Jehovah Lord, in all capital letters, sitting on His throne. We haven't been there in the body, in the flesh, but we can go there by these pictures and visions that God gave the Lord Jesus Christ to give to John to show unto His servants things which must shortly come to pass. And it it predicates the whole thing by God being in heaven and Jesus Christ taking His rightful place at His right hand. Chapter 4, will not read, I'll not comment upon, were introduced to four and twenty elders representing the church under both covenants, Old Testament and New, and four beasts. And they are worshiping Him that sitteth upon the throne forever and ever. And we sing that eleventh verse often as a chorus in our church, Thou art worthy, O Lord to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. Now the word Lord in verse 11 is in lowercase letters. That does not mean it's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, because it isn't. It's speaking of God, the Father, on His throne. The reason we don't have capital, we don't have a capitalized L-O-R-D in the New Testament, because the Hebrew tetragrammaton of four consonants meaning I am that I am, is not in the Greek language. Right. So it's, it's L-O-R-D as we understand it, but this is God the Father sitting on His throne, and Jesus Christ is about to approach Him. And so we come to chapter 5. And I saw in the right hand of Him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the back side, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, 
Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Remember the prophecy we read last Sunday from Psalm 49? The lion. A lion couching. A lion. Remember from, from Genesis 49? This is the lion of the tribe of Judah. This is the fulfillment of the scepter coming out of Judah. This is the coronation moment. The lion of the tribe of Judah hath prevailed. He has met the conditions to approach the God that sits on that throne and to take that book of the everlasting covenant out of his hands and start ripping the seals off it that bring judgments on the earth. Weep not. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Notice it doesn't say here a branch of David. It says the root of David. Because David grew out of this Lord. The Lord said unto my Lord. Remember Jesus arguing from this type of an approach with the Pharisees? The root of David hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. Now this is the Lord Jesus Christ from chapters 1, 2, and 3, which if you were to read, you would know who has those seven eyes and those seven spirits. Notice, who is the other author in the Bible that refers to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the author, that refers to the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God? It's John. And John sees a lamb here as it had been slain. He's called a lion, but he's described as a lamb that has been slain. There are death wounds in this lamb that has now appeared in heaven as a word picture for us. Verse 7, He came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. This is a moment of extreme importance and magnitude in these two chapters. He is able to approach him that sits on the throne and take that book out of his hand. And as soon as he takes that book and the God of heaven does not resist him and the angels and beasts standing around that throne do not resist him, this is a climactic moment. This is the coronation of the Lord Jesus Christ and all the choruses of heaven and the choirs burst forth into praise at our Savior, our brother, Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 8, And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. And they sung a new song, saying, a song that had never been sung before. Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And the only reason they had a right to reign is because he'd been given his right to reign. Because he is called the prince of the kings of the earth, who hath made us kings and priests in our own rights unto God. This is the coronation of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a window being opened into heaven for us to see the New Testament period of God's dealings with His church. The first choir is verses 8 and 8 through 10, which is the four and twenty elders and the four beasts, representing all of us, the churches of both covenants, because it's describing the redeemed. Only sinners, redeemed with the blood of Christ, could sing verses 8 through 10. Angels could not sing it because they're not redeemed. So the angels join in in the second verse. And the second verse is 11 and 12. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000. And thousands of thousands. 10,000 times 10,000 is 100 million. And thousands of thousands are many more millions. Saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power. Do you know who's singing this? The most powerful, authoritative principalities and powers in the universe. Outside of God Himself. 
All the angelic host that are called in the Bible, principalities and powers, might, throne, and dominion. We have a 33-year-old brother that was laid in a manger and swaddled by a mother. He was ripped apart by Roman soldiers and hung on a cross to die. They sealed the tomb where they put him so that he could not be stolen away. But he tore the bars away himself and rose from the dead because he said, I have power to lay my life down and I have power to take it up again. And he rose from the dead and he was seen of above 500 of our brethren at once in a worship service like this. Or something like when we get together. And after 40 days, by many infallible proofs, proving to them that he was definitely alive, he ascended up into heaven. And this scene is what took place when he ascended up into heaven. This song had never been sung before that because there was not a mediator yet between God and men. There was not yet a Savior until this moment. Only by prophecy. Only by covenant. I can tell you that when God prophesies and makes a covenant, it's as good as done. Because it's ordered in all things and sure. But this is when it had its fulfillment. And so the angels begin singing that last part of Handel's Messiah. And he took it from this verse. The angels began singing, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing crowned with glory and honor crowned with glory and honor psalm 8 fulfilled in revelation 5 hebrews 2 explained and illustrated by revelation 5 worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power the angels desire to look into these things they cannot believe that the word of god came down and joined the man, Jesus of Nazareth, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, made himself of no reputation, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Verse 13, we got a third verse to this song. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them. Do you think that includes every creature mentioned in Psalm 8? Mm-hmm. Heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. There is God Jehovah on the throne and there is the Lamb of God, the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth at his right hand, crowned with glory and honor. This is his coronation. This is your Savior. He is no longer on a crucifix. He is no longer in a manger. He is seated at God's right hand. And the four beasts said, Amen. And every child of God that loves this Savior should say, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped Him that liveth forever and ever. Amen. Crowned with glory and honor. This is the coronation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's read Philippians chapter 2 that I just partially quoted to you. Let's read just a couple of passages before we settle this subject. Why was he crowned king? For the glory of God. This is the power and the wisdom of God to take a man out of the woman that was defeated by the devil in a two-minute conversation to take a man that came out of her womb under the curse of that conception and childbirth And destroy the devil for the glory of God. And to save some of those sinners that the devil had taken captive through the law of God in the Garden of Eden. To deliver us and make us the sons of God. There's going to be an adoption ceremony the likes of which you've never seen coming soon. You've never imagined it except through the pages of Scripture. We will be owned as the adopted children of God. Predestinated to it before Adam was ever created. Paid for by the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Names written down in the book of life of the Lamb slain. And when were they written there? From the foundation of the world. Philippians chapter 2. 
Jesus Christ was humiliated. But for that humiliation for us, He was also highly exalted. Philippians 2.5 Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul uses this doctrinal point of his coronation to provoke us to get down and serve others. If Jesus Christ could get down and serve so well, why can't we? Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Amen. He has been raised far above all principalities and powers. Every name that is to be named in this world and the next is under Him. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What are we expecting in the future? What will we see? We will see the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ fully manifested to the world, which in His times He shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, King of kings and Lord of lords. In His timing, He will show. He is biding His time. He is long-suffering for us to repent and to be faithful. He is giving us an opportunity, a window of time, so that when He comes... We will not be found in sin. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23. 1 Corinthians 15, 23. But every man in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. Afterward, they that are Christ at His coming. So we're talking about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the resurrection of the dead, which is the theme of 1 Corinthians 15. When Jesus Christ comes the second time and raises the dead, look at what the Bible says that is called. Verse 24. Then cometh the end. Notice it doesn't say, then cometh a seven-year tribulation, then cometh a thousand-year millennium, then cometh the end. Then cometh the end. When He shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father when He shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For He must reign till He hath put all enemies under His feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For He hath put all things under His feet. But when He saith all things are put under Him, it is manifest that He is accepted which did put all things under Him. And when all things shall be subdued unto Him, Then shall the Son also Himself be subject unto Him that put all things under Him, that God may be all in all. That's the future. That's the future of this world. And if your prophetic scheme does not fit that future, your prophetic scheme needs reworking. Because that is the end. When Jesus Christ comes the second time, that's the end. Now, He has all things under His feet. It says in verse 27, Thou hast put all things under His feet, but it says He must reign until all things are under His feet. They're under His feet by the authority that He's got, but He has not put His foot down yet, if you'll let me use those words. He has not subdued all His enemies to Himself yet. He has not vanquished death totally yet. He'll vanquish death, brethren, when He says, Come forth! And you know what you're going to do if you've been buried? You're going to think about it? You're going to come forth! He will vanquish death. He will rip every cemetery apart and every crematorium where any poor saint has ever been cremated. Lord, have mercy upon their families. He'll rip them all apart. He'll vanquish death. He'll vanquish all the enemies of the church. He'll take us out of this place and He'll burn up this polluted world. And He'll deliver it all to God and say, here's everything you gave me to rule over. I have reigned in righteousness and judgment and equity all the days of my life. Behold, I and the children which Thou hast given me, we are all here, not one is lost. That God may be all in all. 
That's the future of our king. Pretty big future. Pretty exciting to be part of his army. Part of his kingdom. Pretty exciting to be his brother. He calls us brethren. I'm not ashamed. He's not ashamed to call me his brother. You like that? He's going to be ashamed of many. I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. But he will own us as his brethren. Saints were persecuted in the city of Thessalonica because they preached another king named Jesus. Life under the king. We are to press into his kingdom, brethren. Is there anything keeping you out of his kingdom this day and serving him with all of your heart, soul, and mind? Then shake free of it and press into his kingdom. Whenever you find in the Bible references like Psalm 27, like Psalm 31, like Psalm 91, about the pavilion of the Lord Jesus Christ, take comfort in it, brethren. I've told you what a pavilion is before, but how much does it move your soul? Do you know that the pavilion was that great tent set up in the middle of an army where the king rested, where the greatest and mightiest men of the army were gathered all around it to protect that king? And he takes you into the secret compartments of his pavilion and he keeps you there. That is what Psalm 27, 5, 31, 1 and 2 and Psalm 91 verses 1 and 2 say about him. He hides us in his pavilion in the time of trouble. I have a king like that. I know him. He knows me. I try to follow him. And I know that in days of trouble, I can go and hide in his pavilion. Do you know my king? And do you know his pavilion? Have you been estranged from that pavilion? Have you been lost? Then run to him. Because he'll take you into the secret of his tabernacle and hide you there from the strife of tongues. This is life under our King. We live in perilous times of the last days when men have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. The angels sang, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive... Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power. Power. Authority. They do not know the Lord Jesus Christ of authority that I have just preached to you as the King of Kings. They do not know that Savior. They have that picture not only in their churches, in their Bibles, on their key rings, but also in their heads and their hearts. And it's not the true Jesus of the Bible. They are worshiping another Jesus, another spirit, and another gospel. They can be born again and do that. If, if you cannot worship another Jesus while being a born-again child of God, then why was Paul afraid for the Corinthian church? But elect born-again children of God can worship another Jesus. And they lose all the glory, all the thrill, excitement, marvelous wisdom and power of knowing the true Lord Jesus Christ of the Bible. We live in those days. Let us stand for the ancient landmark that Jesus Christ is King before this whole world. Let us live like He's King. Every time we compromise and cheat in our walk, we are saying... He's not important to me. He is a great king and he deserves the very best we can give him. He's defeated sin, death, hell, and the devil. And he's going to soon make a full display of it to the universe. He'll show in his own time that he is indeed the blessed and only potentate. I had reason in the last two days to write a man who argued against a recent commentary for mentioning the Masonic Lodge. He was mad that I had picked on those nice men who ride in the little cars and the little motorcycles and support Shriners Hospitals. And I said to him, if those little men are so good, godly, and Christian, then why are they called Grand Potentate and Imperial Potentate when the Bible says there's only one that's called the Blessed and Only Potentate? And I used a soft answer and appealed to him as well as I could. And he wrote back yesterday morning, And said, thank you so much for reminding me of how I ought to defend Jesus Christ. He is the blessed and only potentate. 
King of kings and Lord of lords. If Jesus of Nazareth is king, he is. Are you living for him? Are you guarding your tongue like the memory verses we had this week? Are you guarding what you watch on television like the memory verses from last week? The previous week? Let's give him our hearts, our lives, our eyes, our hands. Everything that we have, let's not give him lip service. Let's give him heart service. He is worthy, brethren. He is worthy. Jesus Christ is King.